0: Hello everyone and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence and lots of guts. My name is Adriel and I've led sales at multiple companies, sometimes as CEO, other times as head of sales, but always with a love for the job and a fondness for fun stories. Currently. I lead sales at self-driving delivery car company, Udelve, and I love startup history, scrappy sales and stories, and I'm excited to learn them and share them with you. Our guest today is Patrick Matier. Patrick's story as the founder of Steal the Seasons is amazing, and I particularly love it because I watched him start the company five years ago and grow it into a very impressive food startup. So, what is Steal the Seasons and who is Patrick? Seal the Seasons partners with local farmers to sell locally grown frozen fruit 365 days a year in nearby grocery stores. Seal the Seasons operates in five different regions of the United States Southeast, Northeast, Midwest, Pacific Northwest, Pacific Southwest, with four to nine products available in each region, which, as you might imagine, is quite an operational challenge uh, and affects sales very much. The company was founded in 2014 by Patrick Mathier. A local food entrepreneur who founded the company while in college at unc chapel hill go heels Matthias is a 2017 recipient of the forbes 30 under 30 for social entrepreneurs as well as a winner of the 2018 specialty food association leadership award for vision don't know what that one is but it sounds very fancy seal the seasons began by selling produce in north carolina-based retailers in the fall of 2016 and expanding to new regions in the fall of 2018 winter 2019 CEO Seasons is now available in 30 states and more than 3,000 conventional and natural grocery stores. Patrick has really been through the mill of early stage sales, fumbling around in a new industry, working tirelessly to build trust, and always doing what's right for the customer. And as you can tell, the operational complexity of what Patrick has built has an enormous effect on the sales success of what they continue to build we have a great conversation with lessons that anyone can take away into food tech or really any other industry and so without further ado i hope you enjoy my conversation with my good friend patrick Matier. patrick Matier, my old friend welcome to the gong <laughs> thank you thank you happy to be here yeah we got our teas in hand and we are ready to talk fruit today Excited about it. Um, so you you started Seal the Seasons in college. I remember keeping keeping tabs a little bit about what was going on. Tell me about sort of your first hundred days, so to speak. Of what was it like to start Seal the Seasons?
1: Yeah. So started Seal the Seasons my junior year of college at Carolina. Um, like right out of the dorm room, uh, we really saw it as. Uh, more of a club you did on the side you know something that we were working on and you know wanted to engage with the community uh, go to business competitions do pitches Uh, but for the first year we really didn't see it as a business or something that was going to go anywhere Um, by the end of you know my spring semester junior year uh, I went to a business competition out in Wisconsin and uh, the judges pulled me aside at the you know at the end of the competition to give me some feedback and said you know you need to run with this you need to do this you know we didn't pick you first place because of this scoring criteria but this needs to be a business uh, no one ever told me that before That so was maybe uh, 150 days in. Uh, and we ran with it from there. Where were you at? What was the state of the
0: business at this competition in Wisconsin?
1: <clears throat> yeah, we'd never not produced a product. we just done pitch decks, talked to some farmers. We hadn't even talked to our first customer yet. That didn't happen until you know that was May of. Uh... <sighs> Uh, May of 2014 when I had that competition and we didn't talk to our first customer until September or October of that same year.
0: And so you guys have three different stakeholders, You have, or many stakeholders, three of the outside ones, the external ones, are the farmers who produce the fruit, the stores who buy the fruit, and then the end consumers who use the fruit. Exactly. How do you think about sort of your obligations to each one of them and the relationship between all three?
1: Yeah, so, you know, still the season's kind of coming back to our values. Um, we think the food system for the last 30 or 40 years has really been focused purely on profit. They haven't been bringing products to market uh, that people want, um, and they haven't been doing it in a way that you know, is cognizant of the planet and you know, just uh, everything that's, or even the food itself really. You know, these are lower quality products, they're focused on margin, they have fillers in them, they have chemicals and things that you really don't want to be eating. Um, so we've really seen over the last, you know, 20 years that the food system is moving back to natural and organic and at Seal the Seasons for us, that means balancing profit, people, and the food itself. You know, all three have to be in uh, you know, symbiotic balance. Otherwise, we're not going to accomplish what we want to accomplish. So uh, on the people side of things, that's, that's our growers, that's our farmers and everyone through the supply chain that's packing the product bringing it to the grocery store, even the grocery clerks on the floor that are helping us sell the product and you know, tell consumers about it. Um, so you know, we really emphasize a, kind of an ag of the middle concept with our farmers where we want to work with them to agree on a price together and not either of us are using our market power to dictate the price, but find something where Seal seasons can make money and we'd still need that third you know, pillar of profit. Uh, but the farmers can also make money and help grow their businesses and keep those farms in the family. That's what we're looking for them to do.
0: Uh, what were your first conversations with farmers like? Uh, so you had your thesis. Well, tell me about what that early thesis was in the first 150 days or so. Yeah. And then you said you spoke to a few farmers. What, what were you speaking with them about? Yeah.
1: So back in the early days, uh, I was working at the farmer's market and saw the opportunity because uh, how much people loved local food. I was also working with farmers at the farmer's market and saw how much leftover food they had after every market, and there was just a surplus of product. Uh, farmers are great at growing delicious food, and we need to be you know, preserving that food and making it available to people to eat. So, What would they do with the food after the market? They would donate uh, through a donation station program so that it wouldn't go to waste, but a lot of farmer's markets don't have that sort of program um so farmers had occasionally had alternative markets like the juice market uh for wineries or you know selling to manufacturing um but all those alternative markets weren't developed in North Carolina farmers had no very rarely had a secondary option and that's really so where they would just toss all the strawberries they would toss it they would donate them to the food but you know they would they would try to do something they'd feed them to their pigs you know farmers are really resourceful they're going to They're going to make use of the product, and they're going to make sure, even if it's just fertilizer being plowed back into the field, it's going to get used in some way. It's just, are they using that um, to really support their farms in the best way and feed people, which is, you know, what the food's actually for? Um, So by creating this frozen market in places where it doesn't exist, we give farmers a secondary option that still has a lot of value. They get paid a good value for that product.
0: So, tell me about your first few conversations with the farmers. You went to them with this idea, hey, I noticed the farmers markets, looks like you're throwing out a lot of the strawberries, you're not making money off of it, our idea is to freeze them and to sell them to stores, what do you guys think?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I had a like $500, you know, 1993 Honda Nighthawk motorcycle at the time, had no car, couldn't afford one, and would roll up on their farms in this, this spittering bike. Uh, and tell them that I was you know, applying to some grants to buy their food and freeze it and sell in the grocery store. And uh, I think they had had you know, people talking about grants in the past and uh, there wasn't, wasn't a lot of belief at first. You know? But they were willing to talk. Farmers, again, very entrepreneurial, very resourceful. Uh, they liked the idea, they just wanted to see it executed. So when I came back uh, later that you know, spring with my first $50,000 grant and said, hey, I need to you know, put a purchase order in for your product, um, they really took us seriously and they were really game to make it happen.
0: And so what what happened next? You, did you go to this farmer and buy the $50,000 worth of fruit and then you went to a grocery store? What are those first, you said you didn't talk to your first customers for a little bit longer. Who were the first customers you spoke with and what was the context of that?
1: Yeah, so uh, we started with our local co-op grocery stores where most natural and organic brands begin. Weaver Street, um, Weaver Street Market. All right. Shout
0: out to Weaver Street Market. I was <laughs> a co-op member. Very proud. Shout out
1: to James Watts over there, Weaver Street. <laughs> <laughs> Still going strong. Um, yeah. Well, I you know I actually cold called James at Weaver Street. He's their one buyer. and manages the entire store, uh, except for produce. And you just found his name on. Found his found his somewhere. name online. Yeah. Um, knew that this was the you know the kind of product market fit for Weaver Street. They talk about local all over their stores. I uh, cold called James. We spent about forty-five minutes on the phone with, with a group with a grocery buyer. That's an eternity. Most of our sales meetings are only thirty minutes long. Uh, so James, you know, walked me through and basically just grilled me on the product. Asked what I was going to bring to market, what unit size was the was the packaging going to be clear or opaque? You know. Did you know the answers to these questions? I, I just had to shoot off the hip, man. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> I was nervous as hell. You know, uh, standing in a room with a speakerphone, pacing back and forth. Uh, just writing down what James was saying, and um, you know he's the type of guy that wants to know that someone's going to be successful and kind of prove themselves. But once you've gone through that uh, that grilling, uh, James is an incredibly supportive mentor, and he's been that way the last five years. Uh, we meet with him, you know, at least once or twice a year, have beers, talk about where the company's going outside of the you know existing sales relationship we have with the stores.
0: Yeah, and so you 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 spoke to James. When did the actual conversation of making that first sale come up? I mean, you talked for 45 minutes, you didn't even know, you didn't have packaging, let alone know if it was clear or opaque. Uh, When did, how did you turn it into an actual sale?
1: Yeah, so James told us, you know, if you bring this product to market, I'll put it on my shelves after that first phone call. Just handshake agreement? Just over the phone agreement, yeah. Really, you know, really verbal. He wanted to see the packaging, he wanted to make sure we had the food safety in place. You know there are some basic metrics you have to have the insurance and liability premium product liability um, but he said "Yeah, if you can fulfill the requirements for my store this is a product I want to have on the shelf my customers are gonna like this um, so that was in like September of 2014 and by June 4th 2015 we had produced five different products and we you know, uh, drove them into Weaver Street and put them on the shelves ourselves that first time. Did you have to, since in, in your business model, I mean, of course the stores need to buy your stuff,
0: but I know every time I, I walk into a grocery store with our mutual friend Alex, he's always readjusting the seal the season stuff, making sure there's a lot of produce in there. Sometimes he'll even walk up to the clerk and say, hey, do you have more in the back? It's yep. running out and doesn't look good. So you have a massive consideration in your business model for the customers of your customers. Yep. What kind of relationship do you builds with them, and how has that evolved over the last five years?
1: Yeah, so that's something that we've really just started putting more effort in in the last year or so, uh, as we've had some more outbrain leverage to have staff to work directly with the end consumer. Uh, We've started a newsletter, and now it's over 2,000 subscribers. Uh, Our Facebook page is over 2,000 likes and followers, Um, and we really just want to bring them content from the farm, uh, telling our farmer's stories. Uh, We're doing a complete... Content strategy rebrand starting January one, and really excited to you know better tell those farmer stories and better tell the why you know to the consumer. Yeah, I, I
0: remember when you guys released bags with the farmers information on the bag. Yep. So was that just a part of trying to build a closer connection to the customers of your customers?
1: Yeah, that was just really just the first step. And um, while the connection with the seal of seasons brand is critical, and we're the You know, the avenue and the channel between the farmer, the grocer, and the end consumer. Um, We really want that relationship between the farmer and the end consumer. And us in the store, we're just a partner and a guide to make that happen. Uh, We want to guide the consumer to supporting their local grower and following through on the values they believe in. There's a big aspect of trust
0: to what you're doing.
1: Uh, Farmers who
0: are notoriously not well taken care of by companies. Need to trust that you're gonna take care of them. Yep. Customers are buying food from you. There's nothing more like intimate or personal than the food that they buy. Uh, I don't know if anyone's told you this, but you are wearing blue corduroys and a scuba diver shirt. You don't exactly look like a farmer, <laughs> necessarily. How did you How did you build trust with your customers or all three legs of your customers, never having sold to a grocery before, never having worked closer with a farmer than participating in their farmer's market and never having sold done anything with food to consumers before besides buy it
1: yeah so you know it always comes back to the values and the mission Uh, I was just a really big evangelist with the growers that you know this needs to be a reality the status quo is not you know acceptable and the growers were all about that we have we have growers now who've reached out to us we got a uh, comment on our website about two months ago from a grower in Michigan who we have never even met before and he said, "Hey, I saw your Michigan blueberries on the shelf at Meijer, and I've been trying to pursue this idea for 20 years. You know, this is something that I, you know, know needs to happen. And I wasn't the one to do it, but now i you know, I'm so happy to see this product on the shelf and someone making, you know, building these local supply chains. So the growers were always easy to easier to win over. Um, now that we have so many grower relationships, we just use references, and when someone." you know, is working us with for the first time and we asked them to buy a hundred thousand dollars worth of product, they want to make sure they're gonna get paid. And, you know, we have plenty of, of grower references who uh, I'll be very honest with them. You know, uh, the first few years we didn't always meet our deadlines of paying the growers, but we always got them paid in the end, uh, always before the next crop and um, our growers say they get paid faster and faster every year. That's a that's a huge I'm glad you
0: mentioned that because pretty much every startup misses deadlines. And oftentimes these yep. deadlines the reputation of missing a deadline oftentimes falls on that salesperson. In your yep. case, it was you. Uh, in the case of many startups, it's a head of sales or a VP of sales, yep. and that's where that trust is built. Yep. So in your first couple of years when you were missing these deadlines and farmers did not, could not trust you to pay them the money that they expected, or you mentioned a story earlier where you just weren't able to get things year-round onto shelves yep. because you didn't have the operational capacity and you felt like you let stores down. What were those conversations like, and what were your perhaps internal conversations about? Well, this is this is how we're going to respond to the fact that we let these people down. Yeah, so because the company, you could have just brushed them off and say, ah, oh, well, we let Farmer Jack down.
1: We're going to just not work with Farmer Jack, and that's sure. our bad. Yeah, we, we, we could try to find another grower. Um, but what we you know what we found is that you know we're here to support the growers, and just giving them a phone call, having direct communication. You know, talking owner to owner about hey, this is the situation. Um, you know, we know we were supposed to pay you September one. It's going to be October one this year. And just being upfront with people, uh, people just value honesty. And when you show that honesty over and over again, you know, you build that trust.
0: What were some mistakes you think you made in those first couple of years in terms of the sales? There's a lot of learning to be done. Again, let's talk about groceries for a minute. Complex buying cycles. Uh, lots of attention from a lot of different companies. What were some of the biggest mistakes you made in conversations
1: with your
0: early customers?
1: Uh, um, a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'd never done grocery sales before, uh, so I really had to rely on mentors in the industry uh, to help teach me about, about sales and uh, about all the jargon and the intricacies that goes into grocery. Um, you know, uh, I remember coming into, uh, Harris Teeter for the first time and- There's a big Southeastern Major thing. Southeastern grocery, yeah. They're one of the largest, uh, you know, most, you know, best conventional grocery store in the Carolinas. Um, and I had the, you know, I had the new item forms. I had all this, um, all these, all these forms they had and I didn't understand half of what was going on, uh, on these forms. And I even asked the buyer and she didn't even know some of the answers, um, so again, just having that honesty and just being upfront that hey, I'm new to this. Um, the grocery industry is is mostly people over forty and fifty. Uh, so for them to see a young person out there really trying to bring their vision to light and bring their vision to market, uh, it's something they get they get passionate about as well. Um, another another example, I uh, went into, uh, Lowe's Foods for the first year. Um, Randall was nice enough to give me a meeting really great guy over there. They're huge supporters of local over at Lowe's Foods. And, you know, mentors had told me, you know, the worst thing you can do is go out of stock. If you go out of stock on your product, you know, if you don't buy enough strawberries during strawberry season, you know, May and June in North Carolina, and you run out by January, and you're not gonna be able to fill product for four or five months, grocers are never gonna trust you again. Uh, and they, they won't take your product, because grocers have to have something on the shelf in order to generate margin you know support their customers so I went in and um, Randall wasn't I forget the reasoning Randall wasn't able to make space for me or we weren't gonna um, meet his reset date which is when they change out all the shelves with new packaging and new products our packaging wasn't gonna be ready something something was up in the air or we, maybe we couldn't fulfill for the whole year we didn't know if we had the inventory um, and Randall made an offer just to do a one-time buy uh, which is where he put a P.O. in for 10, 20, whatever we agreed upon, you know, 10 dollars 20000 dollars worth of product. He put that product in his bunkers or in the end cap of the grocery store. Is that and a good place
0: to be or a bad place A great to be. place
1: to be. It's the most visible plot in the store. It's a it's a huge opportunity. Um and with an In N Out, you don't have to deliver any more product. It's a one-time buy, you're, you know, you ship one PO and you're done. Um, but I had this idea stuck in my mind that I couldn't you know, come off or the shelf. Or you'd never be able to get back or we in we'd never be there. able to get back in. And uh, this concept of a one-time buy hadn't been explained to me. And I just told Randall, no, we couldn't do it. Uh, we let tens of thousands of dollars inventory sit in our freezers uh, because we didn't have that, um, you know, know no, that intricacy of the grocery market. Um, but thankfully, we've learned, and we've actually been able to buy a lot more inventory. So now we're just always on the shelf year around.
0: Do you do any in-and-out one-time buys anymore?
1: Occasionally, we'll do a holiday item like cranberries. Right now, we're putting into the Midwest from Wisconsin, uh, and a lot of stores are picking those up. That only buying, you know, four, five 600 cases, and they'll sell through those, and they'll be done. When when you were starting to do this, um, as any company
0: gets started, you really need to pick who your market's going to be, how you approach them, how you talk to them, and oftentimes, uh, young entrepreneurs or salespeople will make the mistake of saying, "Oh, we're just we're selling a grocery." Yeah, and groceries, 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 right? Everybody's just a grocer. Like we'll just sell them all our fruit. They're gonna love our fruit. Our fruit's got a great story. Yep. Um, I don't know too much about grocery, but I can imagine groceries are clearly segmentable across one another. Most definitely. Lost Foods is only in North Carolina. Harris Teeter is one of the biggest in the Southeast. Walmart is the largest organic grocer in the country and also has very different standards than other grocers. How much of that were you aware of in your early days, and how did you think about, if at all? Segmenting and focusing on specific parts of the market.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Um, I think intuitively we're all aware that you know some grocery stores like Weaver Street Market or Whole Foods uh, are a little more upscale. You know they're nice, they feel nicer to be in. They're cleaner stores. Uh, they may have been redone more recently. Uh, they may have a smoothie bar. Or, you know those those extra extra cool opportunities and those uh, you know hot bar opportunities that we all love. Um so we all know that those are those are nicer stores, usually their price points are higher. It just it just feels more more up and. I like the
0: nice new Lowe's food stores cuz they put an actual bar. Oh inside yeah. of them and there's coffee shops. It's one that's a fancy grocery. Yeah,
1: Harris Teeter is also opening some of those in uh, the Carolinas. Not when I was there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, intuitively we knew where where wealthier people shop and knew that our product might be a better fit there just to start. Um, but we did make a plenty of mistakes, you know, going into uh, stores where consumers were extremely price sensitive in the beginning, and our product, you know, wasn't going to sell. Uh, not only because the consumer was price sensitive, but just because that consumer didn't buy a lot of fruit. Uh, so understanding really who were the fruit, the frozen fruit buyers, what kind of demographics and and who is into that sort of thing, um, was was crucial. And only recently were we able to commission a. A large you know quantitative research study to actually understand you know who that is and and what that buyer looks like both demographically and um, you know from a psychographic perspective tell me more about those
0: mistakes because those are really really interesting every company ever makes those mistakes it seems it also seems that every company ever knows that they shouldn't make those mistakes yeah they just know that they have certain kinds of customers and they should be where their other customers are my favorite example from your industry is RX bars, yep. Uh they RX bar basically said that we're gonna sell to every and any CrossFit customer we can find, and they prefer to cross, a CrossFit customer across the country more than just like somebody who's hungry in their own backyard. They wanted a certain type of customer, yep. and they worked really hard together. So they, they did a great job there. You made the same mistake that I've made before, and that many, many other people make before, which is, oh, let's just, somebody wants to buy let's sell to them yep so when you think about what that mistake was you know maybe you sold to um, a lower market or just a place that's not right for you how much of that do you think you should you would have avoided let's say you were starting this similar company ten years from now and how much of that was actually perhaps a valuable mistake for you guys
1: yeah so our, our company is a little bit different because we do only local sourcing you know we source our product locally we freeze it locally and we only sell it locally so, for us in the, in the Carolina region where we started, um, we picked up you know, Whole Foods, Harris Teeter, places like Weaver Street and Co-Ops, Lowe's Foods, and then we picked up the uh, top 100 stores in Ingalls, which is in Western North Carolina and Tennessee. Uh, and those are kind of the, uh, we also picked up the fresh market. So with, with those you know, five or six grocers in the Carolinas, that's pretty much the whole higher end of the market. Um, there are, you know, mid-market grocers like Food Lion um, or Walmart, or you know, uh, mass grocers like Target. Um, but because we are a local offering, it's really difficult to get into those sorts of stores. Um, you need, you know, industry systems like EDI, electronic uh, data transfer, where you to, you know, do POs that only big companies use. We now use today, but um, in the beginning we didn't. So You know, once we had gotten into those five or six stores, we really had nowhere else to go. We couldn't go to Whole Foods in California or Whole Foods in New York; they weren't going to take you. They didn't have the standards. Well, we we didn't want to sell them a North Carolina product. Mm. You know, in order to go to those stores in other geographies, we had to build completely new supply chains in other parts of the country. We had to buy completely different packaging and invent and buy fruit inventory, and that was a lot of expansion to the balance sheet, which in the first and second year we just weren't able to do. so because we had really no other option, uh, we did approach, you know, the IGAs of North Carolina and rural stores like Carly C's. Uh, but it turned out that while a lot of those stores weren't the right fit for us, some of those stores, uh, our local nature still resonated so strongly in the rural environment that consumers were willing to pay more. Even though those price sensitive consumers were willing to pick up our product off the shelf because they want to support local and want to support the, want to support the values. Um, so, you know, we, we did learn a little bit there and learned that, you know, the product would sell through Carly C's. And uh, then when we approached Food line a few years later, we, we felt similarly, you know, hey, you know, a lot of these Food lines are in rural locations. They're the, the only grocery store in town. Like, how can this not work? And, you know, it took us a lot longer than we expected to build our velocity. And get our uh, sales per store up to a number that, that made sense Why for everybody. Why is that? Um, the you know, think about if you're thinking about Eastern North Carolina, there's about 25 to 30 Carly Seas locations. And in the same towns, there are Walmarts and Food Lions. If you think about our customer's customer, you know, that those people could shop at Walmart where it's the absolute lowest price, they could, it might be farther away to drive. They could shop at Food Lion, which is convenient and still relatively low priced. Um, or they can shop at slightly more expensive Carly C's, which in the grand scheme of things is still a very competitive price point, uh, but Carly C's does a little bit extra to support their community, buy products from their community, and ha- like they have a fresh meat section where they, they have the butcher in the back. Um, so a certain customer uh, or customer customer is going to self-select to go to Carly C's and skip the food line, skip the corporate store. They want to support their hometown grocer. That's Carly C's motto, actually. Uh, so, you know, those people are already self selecting to be there. They're they're the type of people that want to support local and pay a little bit more for our product.
0: And then, what is it like for you guys? Now you've grown quite a bit and you're doing a few million dollars in revenue yep. and you're at these very, very large stores across the country. Um, y'all are in California now, yep. right? Which is awesome. In technology, we often talk about bringing sales up market, right? And what does it take, you know, startups selling as a startups is uh, somebody gave a quote earlier on this podcast. They said startups to selling selling to startups is like a bunch of drunk guys selling each other beer at a bar. Eventually it's lights on and everybody's gotta go home drunk. <laughs> so, but everybody starts off that way. You started off by selling a Weaver Street, which yep. is the startup quote unquote yep, of It's exactly. called three or four stores in North Carolina. Yep. And then you guys went upmarket, and when we talk in technology about going up market, people might ask you, you know, for example, at UDEV. Uh, larger companies ask us to do a lot more security, yep. uh, data security. So we got to work a lot on that. And before anybody will take us seriously, we need to have the sort of whole product to present to them. Yep. What did that whole product look like for you guys when you began your conversations with places like Whole Foods or a Walmart or a Harris Teeter? What do they expect from you, and how did, were you able to provide that?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so our our packaging evolved a lot in the that first That side year. makes me think like this was a stressful time for you. Yeah, it was <laughs> sorry uh... to bring you back into these nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just it's a lot more than the product, honestly. You know, grocers um, they want a high quality product. They want a product at the right price that they can resell to great make the margin they want. Um, but to be able to work with them, there's a lot of behind the scenes that really needs to get to have done. There's more, more simple things like calling your insurance broker and upping your liability insurance from $1 million to $5 million. There are, uh, but then there are more complex things like getting set up uh, with One World Sync, which is a, a data transfer system where instead of uploading your products and your, you know, your dimensions of your product and all the uh, specifications of it, um, which some, you know, even for a bag of produce, there are hundreds of specifications that grocers need uh, to be able to sell these products, uh, is it gluten free, for example, or is it non-GMO? Um, of course, berries are gluten free, but you still have to tell them that. Um, I like a gluten-free vegan water. <laughs> I always love it's when the best kind tr- of water. They're kosher and it's, it's, it's everything. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so just a lot of that extra work and get all those extra systems into your company, uh, as well as, like I said, the invoicing system and the PO system for grocers at that at that higher level, the market is a different system than just sending a fax. Um, and then finally, the, the, probably the most important one is the food safety. Uh, grocers have really strict food safety standards now after the whole Chipotle thing happened and, and food safety has become front of mind. Uh, they know that the biggest liability of their business and their biggest risk is having recalls. So making sure that we have a professional food safety, um, you know, SQF level two certification or SQF level three by a third party is absolutely essential,
0: and that's first of all something you probably knew nothing about when you made your first few sales, and something you were absolutely not ready to go for exactly uh, in the early re- in the early
1: days, right? Exactly, it's extremely expensive, and your facility has to have a whole number of um, you know physical things in place, from wash stations to the right sort of chemicals to the right sort of spacing between the equipment and the walls to you know, the right, um, you know, physical walls in place between different parts of the manufacturing facility and your production facility. Uh, so bringing a, I know several food companies in North Carolina who, um, who primarily produce alcohol, but they, they partner with some beverage companies and these non-alcoholic beverage companies, uh, aren't able to grow and go up market because the beer companies don't want to do these sorts of certifications. They don't want to put you know, all the extra enhancements to their facility in place and, you know, spend that capital um, when for their business, they don't need that sort of certification.
0: Yeah. When did you, what were the early conversations like of, all right, I think we're, we're ready? Were they actual conversations or like, all right, we're going to go after Whole Foods, like we're going to get them, this is what it takes to get them? Or was it more, more of a slow transition into being ready?
1: Yeah, so back when we started, uh, you know, it was only five years ago, but Whole Foods was a completely different animal. And oh, they you, weren't owned by uh, the evil Amazon. They weren't, no. Uh, Miss Jeff hadn't put his hands on it yet. <laughs> so you could literally approach one Whole Foods store, uh, talk to the manager, and if they liked your product, liked how it tastes, liked the packaging, mm. and you had the right price point, they would tell you, hey, come back in an hour and bring me some product, let's get on the shelf. Uh, so it was a very different environment back in 2015 uh, than it is today. And they were
0: already, were they? I mean, they were billions of
1: dollars then. Were they public? They were public, They are yeah. already public, They're and already they were public. still doing that? Yep, yeah. yeah, They're still doing it on a store-by-store basis. Uh, most of the, the buying happened on a regional basis down at the Atlanta office. So, you know, they have they had a portal where we could upload our products and upload our, you know, short PowerPoint to tell them about the product. And uh, we just went for it, and we got accepted you know that first year, January of 2016, got accepted into Whole Foods um, to get on the shelves. So. And so that was when it was simpler for them to buy. What is it like
0: now? What, tell me about the stage you guys are at now, um, and what
1: are you? Where does growth come from for you now? Yeah, so we're really lucky that um, we have been able to build a balance sheet and build a really strong team around the company to enable growth. Um, a lot of people think we just put frozen fruit in a bag, but it is way more complex than that. <laughs> um, so, you know, right now, um, in, over the last 18 months, we've expanded from just selling North Carolina and South Carolina grown fruit to selling fruit from six different regions of the country where we have independent supply chains with different local family farms. We work with usually one or two freezing facilities in each region that we leverage to freeze everybody's fruit. And then we pack it up and sell it, you know, in that region. Um, so just opening up that uh, number of products and growing our balance sheet has given us so many more sales opportunities to work with, you know, the right grocers across the country.
0: Is that because some grocers, you know, if you just bring them blueberries, they're like, no, we need somebody who does blueberries, strawberries, and cherries. And if you bring them all three, somebody also wants frozen vegetables coming from the same supplier. Is there that level of uh, you need to be of a certain size to so even be in the ring with companies of a certain size?
1: Uh, Grocers usually want you to have enough products to fill at least one full shelf, on the you know 30 inches of shelf space in the store, and that's just a good rule because you want to be you want to create a presence for the consumer. You want them to be able to find your product. If you're one individual product on the shelf, tucked away somewhere, really hard to to find it and buy it. Um, but yeah, now that we have a whole portfolio of frozen fruits, and we've been able to build relationships with the frozen buyer, we've been able to build our frozen supply chains. Uh, we are jumping into frozen vegetable and leveraging all those relationships from production to logistics to warehousing to set sales and distribution there are distributors as well like UNFI or Cahy, uh, to bring those frozen vegetables to market And now we're able to do that a lot faster and, and further the growth of the company so tie this all together Patrick you've been
0: through quite a bit over the last five years with with an awesome team of people you made some Very challenging sales in the very beginning where you just made a bunch of stuff up on the phone about clear full packaging. And now you've grown into a company that's commissioning studies to really, really understand your consumer. As you look over this five-year period, what are you very proud of that you guys accomplished? And then what do you think is going to make you very proud over the next five years?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really proud that we've been able to expand the model across the country. And that really our operations team and our sales team have been able to uh, take take the vision that I had for just one one small region one uh, group of growers and grocery stores and Evangelize that vision to different growers across the country uh, to different grocers across the country uh, and to everyone in between um, Their ability to retell the story and to share why we're here to support these growers um, has, has been incredible to watch and
0: what happens next?
1: yeah, there's a uh... What what's so exciting is now that we actually know what we're doing to some degree, uh, we really see a lot more opportunities across the grocery store for both our uh, purely local products, our products that are hundred percent local, but for products that are also 70 percent locally sourced. You know, we've we've we done we sell bags of blueberries right now, and that's great for frozen fruit. But if we were to make a product out of sixty percent frozen blueberries and add um, you know, other adaptogens or functional foods, add some greens to it, make a a pre-made smoothie cup that's ready to go. Um, How can we, you know, create some innovation in the environment, make it even more convenient for the consumer to enjoy really delicious foods, um, and, you know, through result, uh, further support the growers, you know, source more and more local products. Even if the products we're selling aren't, you know, 100% local, we're still accomplishing our mission. We're still supporting those growers, um, and we're we're bringing a better product to the market. To again, you know, coming back to those three pillars: profit, people, and the food itself. You know, how can we better balance those three and and bring new products to market? So, awesome, Patrick. Let's uh, do a quick fire round session here uh, to to close
0: this off. Uh, any sales or startup books that have been particularly helpful to you?
1: Um, I love. It's a short read, which is my favorite part of it. Uh, but Monkey Manager, Monkey uh, Manager, I haven't heard of it. It's an incredible book. Uh, it might be called the Monkey Minute Manager, or you know, something like that. But there's monkeys, there's managers. Mon- Monkey Manager, you can search it on Amazon. It's like seven dollars, ninety-five pages, pretty big font. Uh, <laughs> pictures? No pictures. No, pictures. no. I... no, no mon- there are monkeys on the cover. So, <laughs> uh, but incredible book. I pass it along to a few friends, and just really helps learn about management and and you know, supporting your staff. Alright, what is the sale you are most proud of landing? Yeah, sale I'm most proud of landing is probably just the first time walking into Harris Teeter. Uh, We were in seven grocery stores at that time and Harris Teeter is a 250 store chain. Um, I was wearing a terrible suit and blazer and extremely nervous, I was probably sweating through all of it. I never made a presentation to a major grocery customer before and um, kept my cool. Got invited back, actually. I Got invited back. That's that's the sign of a good time. Yeah. Uh, what has been your best failure? Or in other words, a failure that has later led to success? Um, numerous times pitching investors and messing up, uh, looking stupid, you know, losing my train of thought on, on a pitch competition or on stage. Uh, but plenty of times we've, we've had that happen and we come back to those same investors six, 12, 18 months later and they've written checks. I love it. Uh, how do you make your smoothie? That is a that's a great question. So <laughs> it might be my best one in the last uh, hour. <laughs> uh, I love Blue Diamonds uh, coconut and almond blend as my as my milk of choice. Okay. Um, that way, I don't have to add any other sweetener besides just the berry, you know the sweet berries themselves uh, and some really you know tart Greek yogurt. Uh, kind of just those three things that. That almond you know, creates some neutrality with your milk, but that coconut adds just a little, just the right amount of sweetness and coconut flavor. So one of my favorite blueberry smoothies. Man, it is lunchtime and I'm hungry. That sounds <laughs> delicious. Patrick, uh, thank you so much.
0: Where can people find out more about Seal the Seasons, find your product, learn more about what you got going on?
1: Yeah, check out our Instagram, at uh, Seal the Seasons, uh, or our website, www.sealteseasons.com, and watch out for that uh, new farmer content coming at the turn of the year. Ah, new farmer content. I am so excited. Patrick, thank you, man. Thank you.
0: Well, there you have it. Patrick Mateer, ladies and gentlemen. Making things up as you go along is part of the job. Bring products up market too early can be painful. And mission? Well, a company's mission can take you a long way. If you want to learn more about Seal the Seasons, find them at Seal the Seasons on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you liked the podcast today, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you didn't like the podcast, find me on Twitter or on Instagram at A Lubarsky 2 and we'll make it all better. Thanks, and happy selling.